Hey, Craig. Hey, Simon. What do you have for me today? So I am here to convince you by the end of this episode that you know how like Netflix is considered to be this hugely disruptive force in Hollywood is completely like upended the super lucrative cable bundle and is also like threatened theatrical releases of movies because it, it basically goes straight to streaming and and is is basically hated by like all of Hollywood as a result. Yeah. So I am here to argue that HBO in its day was much more disruptive than Netflix ever was. It basically changed the entire paradigm for not only how we watch TV, but also uh, how we watch movies. It invented entire industries uh, from scratch or, or at least turned them into the mainstream. And it basically, you know, launched what we consider the modern day prestige TV era. Okay. All right, I am excited for you to make this argument because I know almost nothing about the history of HBO. So yeah, I'm on board, but you have to convince me. Awesome. So uh, before we jump into it, uh, how much do you are like over the past like 15 to 20 years or so, what's your relationship been with HBO? I have not had an HBO subscription uh, that I know of uh, for a very long time. I know we had it growing up. Well, before we get to growing up, but but yeah. just over the like in your adult life, did you ever watch any? Even if you didn't have a subscription, did you watch any shows with like that were like on DVD or like at friends' yeah. house or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, I watched most of The Sopranos, um, and then I watched all the Game of Thrones actually uh, because my nephew shared his HBO account with me, so I was able to watch it that way. Uh, yeah, and that's really about the extent of my kind of HBO viewing over the last I don't know. 50 uh, 10 15 years yeah wow only two shows okay but but mm. you've known it primarily over the last you know 20 years as kind of like this delivery of prestige narrative serialized tv basically yeah and and yeah. especially with the with game of thrones like incredibly high budget special effects mm. type of tv yeah and so kind of like you mentioned the pinnacle of what could be done with like huge budget and like top name actors and yeah yeah and and even luring like traditional like movie actors who would never be caught dead in a tv show like yeah. actually signing on for like limited series and stuff like that mm -hmm. yeah so when you think back to your childhood what was hbo to you it was a way to see boobs yeah okay um so we had hbo and we had cinemax and they were both uh useful in their own ways for that but i don't remember it yeah just when i associate like like tween Craig with HBO, it's it, it it was the channel that showed boobs. I don't recall it like having that sort of like premiere programming until I do remember they had this like big budget uh, TV show about the 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 Apollo landings, like about exploring the moon. That was in like the late nineties, I want to say, and that would like made a bunch of news because it was like it was this super expensive uh, miniseries and it was produced by Tom Hanks and it was after Apollo 13 I think and so it, it was like a documentary um, series no no it was like a it was like a live action uh, series it was called like I think it was called from the earth to the moon and it was all it was about like all the Apollo missions right yeah but well, yeah did I you... don't remember it sort of like I couldn't name any shows from HBO from when I was growing up but that's uh, probably because there weren't many yeah. shows back then. Like it was mainly a place you watch movies. I'm assuming. Like, like. Oh yeah, a... home box office. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So that's when we think back to our childhoods growing up in the eighties and nineties. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think we ever subscribed to HBO, but sometimes they would have like free weekends where they would like promo it, where it would be completely free. Mm-hmm. And so it was always yeah. great um, to be able to watch like movies for free without advertising. And that was the other thing, yeah. right? Was there were, there were no commercials on HBO. And, and also there were, if you were a teenage boy back then, pornography was not easy to come by. So it was, was if you were, if you're watching HBO at, at late at night, uh, you could um, see boobs or some other nudity mm-hmm. or sexual content and stuff like that. Yeah, because um, I remember like after midnight, they would occasionally show, I mean, basically like softcore, um, right? Because it was it, like it was very much kind of like, had, I don't know, it, it, in, in my kind of memory, it had like a seedier connotation than it does now. Yeah, um, well, especially Cinemax, which was owned by the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, nick, the nickname was actually Skinemax because yeah, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, and then, do you know anything about like when you think about like why did the cable industry start? Why do you think ca- cable television came around? I mean, I assume it was taking advantage of a new technology to deliver stuff directly to people on like a, a subscription basis, or maybe a reaction to like. Uh, network sensors. I mean, I know, you know, prior to cable, what it was sort of like, it was like NBC, ABC, CBS, and like network TV had like a stranglehold on things. And there were things you could say and couldn't say and show and couldn't show. And so I, I just assumed somebody saw an opportunity from like a business perspective of here's this technology that's literally a cable. And I don't know what is inside of the cable. I'm assuming it's just HBO. Um, and then a way to deliver boobs to people on a subscription basis. Yeah. So yeah, that's not right, but I'll tell you what is right. <laughs> okay. Uh, but before we get into that, what's the name of this show? Momentary Experts is the name of the show. And you can get it wherever you find your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, and then you can also find it on YouTube. Yeah. Um, okay, let's strap in. So the first thing we got to talk about before we talk, start talking about HBO um, is the history of the cable industry because there, there's really like there, it's not a coincidence that HBO launched exactly when it did is because there was like the right like set of circumstances that came together um, that made it possible. Um, so as you kind of hinted, um, you know, for most of television's existence up until like the mid 20th century, there were only really three television channels like NBC, CBS, and ABC. And that's because television was, was, um, uh, delivered via broadcast. And I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but broadcast happens on a spectrum, and because you can't have too much crowded spectrum or else like it would just cause like fuzziness and, and not a very clear signal, the FCC strictly um, regulated spectrum so that there was only enough spectrum available for three television shows. Does that sort of make sense to you? Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. If you- yeah. Okay. Yeah. And because the FCC was regulated, those were considered public airwaves. They were owned by the public um, they couldn't be privately owned. And basically, the, the FCC licenses that spectrum out. So it licenses out to these broadcast channels. There's different kinds of spectrum that's given to radios. So like all like radio mm-hmm. um, broadcasts are also strictly regulated by um, the FCC. And then today, modern like cell phones and stuff like that, like AT&T has its own spectrum. Verizon has its own spectrum. And that spectrum is limited. 
Um, and then there's satellite spectrum, there's GPS spectrum, and they're, I don't know the physics of it, but they're at different wavelengths. So they're at different wave frequencies and that's how, that's what allows them to coexist. And if they, if you crowd out somebody else's spectrum, then you can't get a clear signal. And so that's why it has to step in and, and regulate it. Right. Does that sort of make so sense? Would, were they regulated like a public utility almost then since they're like sort of like owned collectively? Yes, it was like a public okay. utility, and that's why the FCC was able to set strict guidelines about what could show up um, on your television. So mm-hmm. um, uh, you obviously you couldn't have nudity, you couldn't have profanity. Um, also, because it was delivered by airwaves, there was no way to charge money for it, so it was completely you know advertising supported. So everything had to be like very family friendly because advertisers did not want to appear by any next to anything that was risque or considered brand unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. So the modern cable industry came about not to give people more choice. It was all just a base, basically just logistics. So starting in the night, there were areas of the U S that could not get broadcast signals. What kind of areas are those? Do you think? I'm just assuming places with like poor infrastructure. I don't know the middle of the desert in the mountains. Yeah, but yeah, mountains. Anything that could br- that basically could block a signal. So okay. if you were like in some kind of mountainous area, and then also yeah. in cities, so like large skyscrapers would break up, um, oh, uh, you know, wow. broadcast okay. signals. So the modern or the the early cable. Um, ecosystem came about basically to service those that small number of Americans who could not get a clear signal. So there would be a broadcast coming into an antenna and then the actual, um, you know, the 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 TV shows and stuff were then go through like cable lines to individual people's houses. That's such a weird thought to have in my head. Like, oh, I can't get good TV reception. I, I live in too big of a city. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. but if it's like a thing that's actually traveling through the air and then it's getting, yeah, I know so little about the technologies that we depend on every day. <laughs> and we think of, you know, today we think of like cable being very consolidated through like Comcast mm-hmm. and yeah. um, Time Warner and stuff like that. But for like the first like several decades of cable's existence, it was basically just dozens and dozens and dozens of these individual local um, cable operators that were receiving the broadcast and then had local customers and stuff like that. And in fact, I remember as a kid, like there was no ubiquitous cable system. It wasn't until Mm -hmm. later consolidation came around to where they started, you know, building like massive customer bases and stuff like that. So when did the first cable service start then? Because you said in like in the first decades, plural. So how long ago are we talking? Uh, the late 1940s, early 1950s. What, you're shitting me. Seriously? No. Yeah, seriously. But like I said, it, yeah, but it was nothing like you think of cable today. It was, ba- it was basically yeah. the three broadcast channels, but it was just being delivered to you in a slightly different way. Uh, okay, yeah. Still, that's like, I don't know. That's like uh, slightly brain breaking for me. Okay. Yeah. So for the first 20 years of cable's existence, it, there was enormous potential because they were beaming these through lines anyway, they could add extra channels on top of the three channels, but they didn't because at that point, the FCC was still strictly regulating these cable systems so that they could really only you know, broadcast the three major broadcasts that, that had spectrum. It yeah. wasn't until the early 1970s that the FCC deregulated the cable industry um, 
that suddenly these cable companies were able to start building channels on top of the three broadcasts. And, but because it was so fragmented in like the first year or two, like it was just like they were developing their own channels, but it was like local cable access channels. It wasn't like there was some kind of, it wasn't like, you know, today, like Nickelodeon or MTV or anything like that, because like each little tiny cable distributor was distributing, um, you know, their own TV shows and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. So early 1970s, they deregulate the cable industry and lo and behold, that's when, um, you know, HBO first launches. It, it launches in 1972. I think in like New York or Pennsylvania, there was a kind of entrepreneur who convinced Time Inc., which was a massive media magazine company at that point, to give him a $150,000 grant to basically launch this uh, cable network that it could charge money for on top of whatever the cable distributors were um, charging for basic access to you know, these broadcast channels. It was originally called the green okay. channel, but then they renamed it to HBO. And it was, the idea was so revolutionary at the time. This was pre widespread adoption of the VCR. If you mm -hmm. wanted to watch movies back in the early seventies, you basically had to go to movie theaters. Like that was the only way to consume movies. And then maybe at some later date, they might be syndicated on like a broadcast channel like NBC or something like that, obviously very heavily edited for at you know for advertising breaks and everything like that. But there was no like there was no blockbuster, there was no video rental, there was no way to like buy you know recordings of movies. So it was like it was completely revolutionary idea that um, that entire movies could be broadcast over this cable system. And then the other part that made it revolutionary was that it wasn't hampered by that regulation, the FCC regulation, because it wasn't going out over public broadcast airwaves. The FCC had no say in what could be broadcast. So that mm. opened the window for the first time for things like profanity and nudity and graphic violence to show up and be beamed to your television. Yeah. And on top of that, it was because they were charging a fee that was that was in addition to uh, what you were paying for basic cable. They did not have any advertising, so there were no advertisers to offend by graphic content, by violence and nudity. Okay. Yeah. Um... So. Yeah, it's so jarring now, and I think probably a lot of people listening to this too might not have really experienced much in the way of like TV when ads were still commonplace. But yeah, that was just you know every ten minutes there was a commercial break, and then you know there was when you tried to like record something at home, it was trying to like turn off the recording when the commercial started, and then waiting on the record button right when they ended so that you could pick it back up. Right, and it's it's jarring to me when like I do find myself in a place where I'm watching regular TV again that has the regular ads. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's just like, I, I, we, I like, I don't remember there being this many. I think there always were. It was just, we had gotten used to it. Right. And so, yeah, just the idea of not having any must've seemed so luxurious. And yeah. And, t and today, like when I go to, the only time I'm exposed to cable is when I, I'm in a hotel 
Mm-hmm. And like you, I'm like, did we really sit through this many ads? Like, it's like, it's almost one-to-one sometimes. Like, like mm-hmm. for every five minutes of uh, screen time, you're also getting five minutes of ads. At least when you're like watching a movie over time, once it gets to the end, they know they have you hooked. So they're having more and more ad breaks. Yeah. And it's just such a jarring experience. And it wasn't like we even had like smartphones to stare at while the commercials were on. We just had to watch them. I mean, there was nothing else to do. Like, what are you going to do? Like, go for a walk? Yeah. And if you like the, t- if you remember the TV shows back then, like I dream of Jeannie, you know, I love Lucy. They were very saccharine and, and like, mm-hmm. and the, they, they weren't offensive at all. Like if you remember like uh, Lucy and Desi, they didn't even sleep in the same bed. They had separate beds. Like it was yeah. just like a completely yeah. different like outlook on life. And then suddenly you had this ability that people never had before, which is to watch full length movies in their home without commercials. And those movies were like completely uncensored. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, obviously that was, you know, very revolutionary in its time. Um, it became hugely popular and it was actually like hated by the movie studios. Cause like they, if, if you can already start to draw some parallels between HBO back then and Netflix today is like, like I said, back then, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to a theater and a theater, you know, theater going is much more profitable for movie companies. Cause you have to buy individual tickets that, you know, today costs like, you know, 15 to $20 and whatever mm-hmm. inflation adjusted it was back then, it was much more lucrative because it was bought on an a la carte basis. Now, suddenly you could pay this one monthly fee and get like, you know, basically unlimited movies all around the clock by watching HBO. And, and um, very early on the movie, th- the movie studios felt very threatened by this and did not, uh, they had like a very uneasy relationship with HBO as a result. Um, yeah, they were well, yeah, like I know that in like the 60s, I think was when they started, but like the then also novel concept of like the network, like the made for TV movie, right? Like, you don't need to go out this weekend, you can stay in and watch a movie, it's gonna suck, right? But it was a way to like to do it cheaply, so yeah, probably the studios were never that threatened by them because they were just mostly garbage and you couldn't really attract like marquee uh, movie stars to do them. But yeah, here, if they're actually allowing people to suddenly not have to leave the house. And again, it's something that we take for granted in the era of like, I can just turn on my my TV and I pretty much have access to the majority of movies, like anything I'm feeling like, right? Uh, But to live kind of in a world where your only options were to catch it in the theater if you could, um, then to suddenly have like be able to stay home. Yeah, just like absolutely revolutionary. Yeah, and back then, obviously, theatrical runtimes were much longer because of that, mm-hmm. because there yeah. was that scarcity, and that if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to see it in the theaters. So they could the movies could stay in theaters for much longer than they do today. Whereas there are a lot of movies today that barely last like a few weeks in the theaters because yeah. there just isn't enough demand for them because because of you know the abundance of content that we have access to today. So was there any attempt by the studios to like say like? to limit HBO's access to movies then? Like if they're sort of threatened by them and if they presumably owe like uh, still own like the distribution rights or were, or was like HBO taking advantage of like existing kind of contracts that the, that this, that like these companies had with the studios or. 
Well, it's kind of think you think about like the modern day analog of Netflix is like the studios always considered it, or considered it a threat from very on, but it became yeah. such a powerful force that it was giving them so much money, especially in the wake of the Great Recession, which is when you know Netflix really ramped up its streaming operations. That that yeah. was just like free money coming into their coffers, and they couldn't turn it mm. away at first. Yeah. And then like Netflix accrued so much power so quickly. Like if you look at its like chart of growth. And it was and was within a few years was spending billions of dollars and like all the movie studios and even the the, the television networks got like very addicted to that um, that money mm-hmm. very early on and so we'll talk a little bit about that but yeah the same kind of thing happened with HBO but they were so th- the movie studios were so threatened that they actually teamed up to launch a HBO competitor which was a cable channel called Premiere. And basically, they would have been able to do what you're saying is basically bypass HBO and go direct to the consumer. And then, you know, why would they need to go through HBO anymore? They just mm-hmm. could, you know, get their get all their customers on a $15 a month subscription and and deliver movies to them. So that would have completely basically destroyed HBO. And the only thing that saved it was a DOJ lawsuit for antitrust. So basically, the Department of Justice stepped in and successfully sued those movie studios and got them to basically disband Premiere and said, you can't do this because this is basically price fixing and anti-competitive behavior. Oh, okay. Yeah, because if then they also owned the only outlet to getting them to TV, then they control the entire market. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's like a lot of those other kind of regulations that like – you know, those old school regulations that a a radio, a local radio station couldn't also own a local newspaper because it would like mm-hmm. it would just com- control too much of the market. So there are lots of, you know, old school media regulations like that. And this was this was yeah. considered in violation of that ethos. So that allowed HBO to continue to grow unfeathered, unfettered. And eventually it like got enough market power that it could get these super advantageous distribution rights with studios where it could get like exclusive rights to um, broadcast like brand new movies that were just out of theaters, like only a first, like, like the, the theatrical uh, uh, run would end. And then they, then HBO would be able to broadcast it exclusively um, a few weeks later. And, part of the way that it was able to get those distribution rights is it would like, it would negotiate them in advance before the, before the movies even hit the theaters. And so then how did it know how much it was going to have to pay for the distribution rights? It was going to be based on whatever the number was, was tied to the box office numbers uh, of whatever the movie was. So if the, if the movie had made a certain amount in the theaters, then that would trigger an amount that HBO would have to pay for the broadcasting rights which wouldn't be a problem except there were like some big surprise blockbuster hits where HBO had already agreed in advance to license the content and they weren't expecting it to do as well in the theaters that it did. Mm. Like one example was Ghostbusters. Like Ghostbusters was not expected to be a huge hit, but it was, it ended up being like a huge blockbuster and they were the executives at HBO were like watching in horror as the box numbers racked up because they realized that it was going to be a massive payday that was going to almost bankrupt bankrupt HBO because it would have to it, it had agreed in the contract to pay that amount based on the box office, you know. And they uh, couldn't earning. just like back out of broadcasting it like they had signed the contract to also broadcast it 
at this price of like a percentage of the box office. Oh wow. Yeah, okay. That's how they got those super advantageous turns, but that locked them in to whatever yeah. the, you know, the pricing was. So that was like a huge threat to HBO's business model was these like surprise blockbusters that they weren't yeah. uh, expecting to do so well. Okay. So eventually like some competitors came on to the market. Uh, there was Showtime. There was also something called the movie channel. Uh, and, and I remember the, that. Yeah. And so they started, so HBO started to get more competition. There was also in the eighties, obviously the VCRs became more widespread. The, we started to see the early rise of movie rentals and, and movie purchases and stuff like that. So suddenly it wasn't so novel to be able to, you know, sit down at your home and watch a full length unedited movie. Mm hmm. So that put HBO under threat. Obviously, it's business model under threat. So that's when it started to dip its toes into original content. And the early the early things that it focused on, like completely revolutionized those like entertainment mediums that it was focused on. So like one of them was stand up comedy. Um, prior to HBO, like starting these like stand up comedy specials. Stand-up comics only they, like their only way of reaching audiences that were outside of a club was one through the sale of comedy albums like vinyl comedy al albums where you would like oh, go right. and buy and then listen to it, and then maybe if you were an extremely lucky, you could get like a, a five-minute set on some late-night show like Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. But of course, like then, because it was on broadcast channel, it had to be you know super clean set. There couldn't be any profanity or anything like that. Um, HBO basically built an entire market from scratch for the hour long comedy special. Okay. And comics love this obviously because it gave them a national stage, but it also allowed them to be extremely profane, tell dirty jokes. Um, and it really allowed them to be more creative in their standup and also to build like hugely successful careers because before they were completely reliant on, you know, going from, you know, the different comedy sellers and stuff like that and building an audience like slowly um, by just like doing stand up in front of live audiences. This allowed them to, to meet, uh, reach like a very huge audience um, all at once, which like basically minted all these careers. Uh, it built the careers of George Carlin, Chris Rock, Billy Crystal, Robin Williams. It, it, it put all these comedians, these like what we consider now to be A-list stars on the map because of the mm -hmm. because of the invention of the HBO hour-long comedy special. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like uh, like comedy specials that I seem to remember watching a lot in the '90s. There was the um, uh, the Chris Rock one where he had like the blue letters behind him on stage the whole time. Was that an HBO special? Yep, Chris Rock, famous HBO okay. specials. Chris Rock. Yeah. There was Dave, Dave Chappelle. Uh, one of his earliest specials was on mm -hmm. um, uh, George. I mean, again, George Carlin, very famous stand-up comedian. Very like you know his jokes, like clips are still circulated on YouTube today. Um, trying to think, there was another famous um, comedian in the '90s, but I'm currently blanking. But anyway, yeah. So that so. Um, I, I found this quote, let's see. Um, when HBO launched in 1972, there were only 10 major comedy clubs in the entire country. Fast forward 10 years later, and there were more than 400, due in large part to HBO's commitment to featuring comics. So it basically like turned 
stand-up comedy to this kind of niche pursuit to this like mainstream type of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's a it's a fantastic idea when you think about it because okay, they want to be able to offer something that that still other people aren't right. That's still also unique to kind of their package, right? So like adult themes, but like if you do a comedy special and you book a, like a really good stand-up comedian, and you don't have to do a lot. You just turn the camera on and then they're funny for an hour. And it's not like you have to hire a bunch, even if the the comic himself costs a decent amount of money, you don't have to pay other actors. You don't have to, there's not like huge mm-hmm. production or special effects yeah, or all those auditorium. Yeah. So it's like, it's kind, it's kind of an inexpensive way to make like original content. That's like, you know, super entertaining and that audiences would actually want to tune yeah. into. Um, the other um, industry that it turned mainstream was boxing. Um, prior to HBO, you know, boxing was mainly consumed at the local level. Like you had to go to a fight um, or maybe it was like broadcast on a local channel, but there would be, but like, you know, like again, the cable industry was so fragmented at the time that there was no way to broadcast a live boxing match because it was too violent to be on like the, the major broadcast mm-hmm. airwaves. There was no way to broadcast like a national fight. And so that's when HBO basically invented the entire satellite business, a way, a, te- a technological way to beam a satellite um, feed of a boxing match to all these cable distributors um, at once so that no matter where you were, you could watch the fight in real time. And again, you've got content that's like already there and you don't really have to do much else for it. I mean, you've got to like, you know, create some intros and promos and you have to like hire announcers, but the rest of the you're just filming people who are boxing, right? So you, it's not like you have to like write it or create episodes. Yeah. And, hmm. you know, like some of the most famous fights that people still talk about today, you know, George Foreman defeating Joe Frazier, uh, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, uh, those were broadcast on HBO. Uh, HBO basically put Mike Tyson on the map. Like there was a time when Mike Tyson and HBO were basically synonymous uh, Mike, T- Mike Tyson played a huge role in the rise of like, you know, HBO and, and vice versa because his fights were just so much in demand. And like HBO would actually do a, a kind of pioneered also like pay-per-view and would be able to charge like huge exorbitant amounts of money just to watch like a mm-hmm. single Mike Tyson fight. And then the third thing was documentary filmmaking. Like it's hard to kind of think about it to that now, but like back then in the, like the seventies and, and before then, documentaries were like super niche they had almost no budgets whatsoever um you could only see them maybe at like film festivals and then maybe if pbs picked up your documentary it would get a wider audience but there was not like a national audience for you know documentaries at the time and like again going back to that what you're talking about kind of the highly entertaining but low budget um fair where they wouldn't have to like hbo wouldn't have to pay as much as like what what a broadcast channel would have to pay for, you know, like a sitcom or a TV show or something like that. Um, it commissioned a lot of d- documentaries. And then it also, for that, it leaned into, um, you know, its ability to have sexual content, nudity and stuff like that. Like there was this incredible, I don't know if you remember it from the kid, but like what you talk about, like sneaking in, sneaking to watch boobies when you were like 14 years old yeah there was this uh there was this series called real sex do you remember that yes i do yes i do yeah so that was like a hugely popular documentary series on Mm -hmm. hbo 
Uh, and then also, um, there was the, uh, the taxi cab show. Yeah. Yeah. So it was um, all, yeah. Like taxi cab confessions or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And I had forgotten about that. Um, but yeah, kind of like, I don't know, it did vanish down the memory hole, but that was, um, yeah, just kind of like, it was like a camera in a cab, like driving around and then hoping to find the drunk adult people talking about sexy things. Um, again, like not a lot of budget required for that, but um yeah still kind of leaning so yeah like even more still leaning into that sort of you know what can we offer that other people aren't you know so it's still this adult content and it, yeah and hbo back then was just super scrappy like it's it's executives were very cheap they did not like taking huge bets on anything and so it just kind of had to like work with what it had it didn't have huge budgets and so it had to basically invent these genres from scratch that didn't cost a lot of money but were also incredibly popular in order to differentiate itself you know, from Showtime, from the movie channel and some of these other things that had that had access to the same movies that it had. Okay. So then you flash forward a few more years and it can no longer kind of ignore the pull to start like actually funding real shows, real fiction series, because by then, like, you know, obviously there were more cable channels coming online. It wasn't just HBO anymore. It wasn't just Showtime. There was like the rise of TBS, TBS, TNT, MTV, Nickelodeon. There was just like a wide range of competition that was starting to come up. And um, they were part of the cable bundle. So it was kind of differently. They, they had like what are called carriage fees, uh, which allowed them to make money regardless of whether people were actually watching them. And we don't have to dive into that rabbit hole, but but HBO was always an add-on service. It wasn't part of the traditional cable bundle. Mm -hmm. And so it needed it needed to get it needed to create stuff that was so good that people wouldn't be satisfied with the traditional cable bundle that they wanted to pay that extra money on top of their cable bill in order to access it. And at that point, Blockbuster was ubiquitous. So on the movie front, it really couldn't compete. And you had a much more diverse lineup of television shows, not just on broadcast, but then this burgeoning, these burgeoning cable networks, which because of carriage fees and advertising and stuff like that, were able to start mm -hmm. funding their own shows. Um, okay, well, so did the rise of the internet and the already universal availability of pornography then also kind of lessen the value add of adult content that HBO had, do you think? Um, I mean, I, I would say that was probably much more disruptive of like Playboy and Penthouse than it was, yeah. you know, HBO. I, none of the research that I saw indicated that the internet was like, at least at that point, was a huge threat to HBO. Because like, um, but we will talk a little bit about, more about like the, the nudity and profanity and stuff as we talk about these shows. Yeah. But I don't know that, you know, the rise of the internet and pornog internet pornography was really that much of a disruptive force. Or not just pornography, but, you know, like, just the ability to sort of, like, and I guess, you know, we're, well, yeah, we'd be talking about, like, pre-video streaming and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, video sort of, back you know, then was really hard to stream. Yeah, just kind of, like, the ability to even create, yeah, it's sort of, like, I don't know, more adult oriented content but it would have been all text-based so yeah so like that really wouldn't have been a competitor to like the allure of things like real sex or taxi cab confessions yeah i'm kind of getting ahead of myself in like the technology evolution yeah but really the threat was on the movie side was like blockbuster 
And then on the television side where these these up and coming television networks, cable networks and stuff like that, that because mm-hmm. they were on the traditional cable bundle, had large audiences, were also monetized through advertising and could afford, you know, to actually fund like really t- real TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah. So so starting in the in the 90s, HBO starts to wade in to, um, you know, actual traditional TV shows. Um, it's early shows because their executives were so cheap or super low budget. Like one of its first kind of critically acclaimed shows was called the Larry Sanders show. And I actually like went back and tra- and because I heard so much hype about how great this show was, I, I went on HBO max and like tried to watch of, uh, mm-hmm. some of it. And it is so low budget it is almost unwatchable. Like it looks like they, you know, are like we're using like a regular video camera or something like that. Like the yeah. the the sets were incredibly cheap. The 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 video quality was just bad. Apparently, like they couldn't even afford to build a kitchen in on the set for Larry Sanders' home. So in the entire run of the series, there's not a single scene that's shot in his kitchen. As a result, like that's how the how cheap they were. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I have a vague memory of that. Um, and it also kind of, you know, still being that, you know, like kind of associated with adult content. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was like, I, for whatever, I mean, I'll, like, obviously it hasn't stuck around for a reason, right? It's just one of those kind of cultural properties that everyone just kind of forgot about, presumably because of how underwhelming it was. Yeah. But despite like having extremely low budgets, like HBO was able to lure a lot of like TV's top showrunners. Uh, of the of that era because they were just so fed up with the networks and like and they wanted creative freedom because there was such strict you know control over you know runtime you know you had to write in beats for, within the show that allowed for a commercial to show every x amount of time mm. obviously you couldn't have any profanity or like there were entire like storylines that they couldn't do because you know the censors at the network were basically telling them no this can't be on television this can't show in front of advertisers and so even though HBO at the time wasn't yet a prestige network and had extremely low budgets you had you know these like up and coming um, showrunners like David Chase, who could be lured onto creating a show for HBO just because at that point they had basically a hate relationship with all the networks because they were tired of like all these restrictions on them. Um, so what year are we at roughly? Are we in like the mid nineties yet? We're the in mid the to late, late, we're in the mid to late nineties. Okay. So, so not they quite yet like premiere TV then obviously. Yeah, not quite premiere TV, but they're starting to make like more original TV shows. That's probably how they ended up greenlighting that NASA show you were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, But there was this thing like I was reading this biography of HBO a few months back. And um, like every time um, a showrunner would turn in a script for a for an episode, like a lot of the HBO executives in their notes back to them would always ask for, quote unquote, cable edge which was code for nudity. And so if you look at like all the early TV shows, especially like even like looking at Sopranos today, like the amount of like nudity and sex scenes and stuff like that is pretty gratuitous. Um, And it's because random there's some boobs. Yeah. And there was like a lot of misogyny within the upper ranks of HBO. Like there was like a very famous case of, um, of a high up female executive being like brutally strangled 
by the I think was like the president of HBO at the time uh, because he had been dating her and been like flown into a rage and we nobody even found out about it for decades because they kind of just paid her off and she quietly you know went away um, and there were all there were all sorts of like really like bad reports years later of like rampant misogyny and sexual mm-hmm. harassment and stuff like that and the top ranks of HBO and as a result of that or, or in tandem with that, like a lot of the HBO executives thought HBO was like a male, a male oriented network. So they wanted to like really lean into that. Hence why every single notes from top brass back to the showrunners is we need more cable edge. Uh, basically yeah. we need to, we need to insert some nudity into this episode. So then, uh, so, okay. So there was, there were several false starts, some critically acclaimed shows, but like they didn't, they didn't have like a lot of commercial success. Like obviously like the Larry Sanders show was kind of a cult favorite, but it was not like any, it was nothing compared to like Seinfeld or something like that. Um, do you, what do you think was the first blockbuster show they had? I'm trying to remember their shows, uh, in the nineties and I intentionally didn't do any, uh, research on this, um, just cause I knew it was the general topic. I know there was that like Arliss show about like a sports agent, and I remember that. And then like there's The Sopranos, which was, but that started in like 2000. That was, was like there a blockbuster in between. Yes, Sex in the City. Oh my god, Sex that was an HBO show, really? Okay. Yeah, Sex in okay. the City was a was not only like a huge blockbuster show that everybody talked about, but then also it kind of disproved this like misogynistic take that only like male viewers would want to watch, you yeah. know, a show on HBO. So it was like hugely successful with uh, female audiences. That was HBO's like first like you know in, like um, appointment television type of thing where like people would actually like tune in every Sunday or whenever it mm-hmm. actually came on to, uh, to watch it. Like huge, hugely successful at least for you know uh, a premium cable channel like HBO. And then as you mentioned, The Sopranos was even a bigger show like sopranos really kind of put hbo on the map for the home of being you know a prestige tv and really like if you think of like what think of like cape like television when you were a kid what was it like were there any kind of serialized stories no so that's a thing it's yeah like you know now you're used to like any show that you want to watch is pretty much going to tell a story over the course of a season or maybe the whole show, you know, like in that uh, Breaking Bad way where it's it's literally a 60 hour movie. Right. But um, it was also episodic. It was there was a story and it was it started and then it and then it ended within the 22 or 24 minutes or maybe 44 if it was an hour or sometimes there would be two part episodes. But yeah. they and the two part episodes these... were like events like it was like yeah. such a huge deal when there was a two. Yeah, it was advertised. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you didn't have this because yeah, like if you, like if you missed an episode, there was yeah, no there way was to no go way. back and watch it again until it was released on VHS. But now it's but he, like, but even yeah, then, it you, wasn't you, you in the '90s. It wasn't normal for TV shows to be released on VHS. That yeah, is like something that came like about if, in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, but now, yeah, it's like if you try to jump in like midway through a show, you can't because you're just going to be lost because they just pick up where the previous one left off. Um, but yeah, like the way of consuming TV was so radically different in the nineties because it, 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 well, one, you had to, there was like an appointment that you had to keep, like you had to be there. Right. And then, you know, like I mentioned that, like trying to like record it and like not get the commercials, 
but then, yeah, if you missed it, then you couldn't really watch it again. So, yeah, if they had tried to do this sort of like multi-episode storylines, people would have just gotten lost. Like probably the most you could get away with was like two episodes. And they still would start the second one with a last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and then have like five minutes of explaining the previous episode. Yeah. yeah so basically like HBO and the and Sopranos caught the wa- the early wave of the DVD box set. This idea, mm-hmm. because that was not like, it seems, it seems obvious now, but it was not the norm for te- like television shows to release like VHS or DVD, you know, box sets of their seasons after they aired. And that was, that was a phenomenon that started in the early 2000s, which coincidentally was right when HBO was ramping up its, you know, actual television production. So it, it basically st- almost invented from scratch. Like there are some precursors like Twin Peaks and a few others that, um, that were shows with like more narrative series, but it basically pioneered the narrative TV, like serialized TV show that's now become ubiquitous, like what we consider mm-hmm. prestige TV today, you know, to be in a higher art form compared to, you know, network television, like HBO was the original pioneer with these shows that had these like super complicated uh, season long storylines and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, so, so you had the rise of the, the DVD box sets and then you're getting into the two thousands. Um, and because there were like no advertisers, it's not to say that like HBO was immune to ratings, but they were like a little bit more insulated in terms of a show having to be a huge hit right away because they didn't have to, they didn't have to like satisfy like advertiser commitments and stuff like that. Whereas like even a moderately successful network show could get canceled very quickly just because there was just such high expectations for how many people that had to watch it in order for it to be profitable. There weren't like that, those same kind of like strict um, requirements for HBO shows. So it could make some long-term bets on shows that were like pretty much commercial failures. Like for instance, did you know the wire was basically like nobody knew that show existed for its almost its entire runtime. Uh, no, but it, it doesn't surprise me because I never watched it until it was over. Right? Yeah, and it, then, it never would. It yeah. never would. It's the greatest. I would argue the greatest TV show ever to exist. It was never even nom. It did, not only did it never win an Emmy, it was never nominated for an Emmy. That's really? how obscure it was. Yeah, just, just nobody watched it. Nobody watched it. It was just yeah. like this, like and it had, so it, it had its like cult following, like it was mm-hmm. loved by critics, and it and there were like diehard supporters. Like I think, like by maybe by like the final season, it had built up a little bit of an audience, but it was not a a commercial success at all as it was running. Yeah, you know, there's so many examples from like broadcast TV of like the one season shows that everyone's still salty about, like uh, Freaks and Geeks, Freaks and Geeks, or yeah. Firefly, or something like that. Uh, just because it didn't have the ratings, so you were done. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, there's this funny anecdote I remember reading years ago about how like David Simon, like somewhere around like the third or fourth season of The Wire, walks into whoever the president of HBO's office was at that time and starts pitching him. On- Did you watch The Wire? Are you familiar with the? Yeah, yeah. But but like I said, like I saw it after it was off the air. Yeah, so like he goes in, he goes in somewhere around the third or fourth se- uh, season and starts pitching the HBO president 
on a spinoff show from The Wire that's called something like The City or something that, you know, like, you know, there was the whole subplot with Mayor Carcetti and like, you know, him like um, coming in as mayor in like the second or third season or whatever. And so David Simon wanted to do a whole spinoff show about the mayor's office in Baltimore. And like, there's this great quote. I wish I had dug it up before this from that HBO executive who was like, here I was like barely being able to green light new seasons of the wire wanting so badly Mm -hmm. to cancel it. And David Simon was coming into my office and, and trying to get me to give him money for another show that was based on this, like, other this show that nobody watched trust me the public is hungry for a drama about the baltimore mayor's office people are gonna tune in like um Um, so yeah yeah. i I didn't know that it was like completely obscure when it was on though because it's one of those that's been like elevated in the public consciousness that i just kind of assumed that it was you know like a like an emmy darling every year that's wild and if it had if it had aired in the '90s, maybe it would be completely obscure even today because there wasn't that ability to catch up and watch it on like DVD or whatever. So, like I remember watching it on Netflix, like mm-hmm. like the net the like the Netflix DVDs that were like mailed out. Yeah. Like I, oh, Mira, yeah. Mira and I watched that together. Um, having so them what like, kind of viewership numbers are we talking about here for HBO? Because this is a thing that I've found myself wondering as you were explaining this it's sort of like throughout the years like because obviously you had to subscribe to it like how many like what was their subscriber base like how many people were subscribing to the show to to hbo like over the years so i think like i didn't i didn't look at the numbers beforehand but i just sort of know some offhand numbers um just because i've been covering media for years it's like i think like at hbo's peak you know we're not counting streaming now we're just counting like cable subscribers it had maybe like 50 million subscribers but a successful okay. tv show like like succession is considered a very successful hbo show and i think like most episodes only had like maybe like 2 million viewers so mm-hmm. compared to like network television even like the diminished network television that came later, like, you know, like nowhere near as big as like MASH or like Seinfeld or anything like that. Like a successful HBO show was much smaller than, you know, a typical, um, you know, network show or even basic cable type of show. Yeah. um, I just looked it up. Yeah. So 1990, they had 17 million subscribers, like coming into the nineties, which, um, yeah, I mean, you, considering kind of the outsized impact that you've described, you know, this one company having on on sort of the history of television and entertainment uh, as as like we think of it now, like for example, the the sort of season long or show long story arc kind of mode. It's um, yeah, that's not a lot of subscribers, like size wise, to like match in my head to like the impact that HBO has. Um, but I guess when you have just enough money to keep going and you have the right ideas and you can continually come up with these like paradigm shifting kind of innovations, then yeah, you can just kind of have this outsized impact on entertainment. Yeah. And like you you say, like 17 million total subscribers. I I mean, I think like the season finale 
or the series finale of like MASH had like 80 million viewers or something ridiculous like that. Like I just think it was more. I think it was like a majority of the United States watched the season or yeah, the series finale of MASH, right? Yeah, same thing for like the yeah. series finale of like Seinfeld and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's user base or it's like it's viewership for even its most successful shows, at least other than Game of Thrones. Like Game of Thrones became like a legitimate like mainstream success where it would it would put up numbers that were, you know, similar in size to like major broadcast mm-hmm. numbers but other than that most t- most of hbo's like even its most successful shows have not been huge blockbusters compared to like network television yeah just as far as size but yeah just if you can continue to innovate in an impactful way even if sort of what you're doing is not reaching a huge amount of people right but um can still have these long-term effects on an industry just because of people seeing what you're doing and it being successful. I was remembering as we were talking, and I'm sure that you remember this too, and it's like a great story, I think, as an example of like cultural change, if you wanted to try to explain to somebody uh, how often just bad broadcast TV was, especially like in the 90s. But um, it was, do you remember when it was a mark of intellect to say that you didn't watch television. Yeah, yeah, when you would like, brag that you didn't do it. Yes, yeah, it was you, you sort of like, yeah, so like a, yeah, like a, a, you know, the insufferable kind of like man of intellect that like we all knew like in our like early 20s, but like in the 90s, it would be like, I don't even own a television, right? And then, and then, yeah, I even remember when I was like in a, high school, I went through a period where I remember I stopped watching television. Like I was a bookworm in high school, and like television mm-hmm. back then just wasn't very good. So I think there was this period of time briefly in my when I was in high school when I stopped watching television pretty much completely. There was even a line in do you remember that um song from the nineties? Um it was called Flagpole Sitter or something by this band Harvey Danger. Uh and one of the lines was and I don't even own a TV, right? It was sort of like like it even like I made it into like song I don't even like, own oh, a TV. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, oh, then you must be a person of intellect, and yeah, it was kind of colloquially referred to as the idiot box, and and yeah, if you're a person of intellect, then you don't watch television, then you you do other things, right? But that's been like completely erased from uh, uh, sort of like our collective uh, consciousness about pop culture, um, just because of how radically different TV is. And now because of the rise of franchise franchise blockbusters basically crowding out all indie movies and kind of small budget movies, TV is now considered like a more prestige art form in some ways than cinema, which classically always had kind of the higher brow association. Well, yeah, it was kind of except it was like, you know, like if you like if you were an actor making it right, then uh, you had like two career paths that you could go on. Everyone tried for movies, right? Uh, but if you got into TV, you couldn't really, you just stayed there, right? And then if actors did do a crossover into TV, it was like a late career one, right? It was sort of like, after I've done actually sort of acting that matters, now in middle age, I can cross over into TV. Um, or it was like a single cameo on a, on a popular show. Yeah. Yeah, but you didn't see people bouncing back and forth. Um, you didn't see A-listers bouncing back and forth. Like, oh, like I'm on a TV show for like one season now and then I'm going to go back to movies. That wasn't a thing that happened. It was like, it was automatically assumed, like assumed to be a step down. 
Yeah, and I heard a fact recently. I, I haven't checked to see if this is true, and I probably could just look at IMDb. But I think I heard that Tom Cruise has never been on a TV show in his entire career because he is like, you know, a classic movie actor and Mm -hmm. like he would never be caught dead on a television show. Same thing with Leonardo DiCaprio. Like he did get his start on like growing paints and stuff like that. But I don't know. I don't think growing. I don't think like Leo has ever been on a TV show like post Titanic. Yeah, I can't think of anything. And I also can't think of anything that Tom Cruise would have been in. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Kind of tell this kind of like older view of like the prestige of film versus television. Yeah, but now it's becoming a lot Uh, more common for, especially with limited series where they're not going to be signed on for like five seasons. Like it's just like Mm -hmm. a single season, single season series. Uh, It's much more common for like A-list actors to sign on to do that. Yeah, and then and then they can bounce back to movies, and that was just something that didn't happen. Yeah, one uh, one of the most miraculous things about HBO is it like it managed to keep its quality high, even though its parent companies were constantly going after into like disastrous merger after disastrous merger. Um, like there was the, the like it, there was the Warner Warner Communications and Time Inc. They merged in the eighties. That wasn't so bad because that was like a cable company merging with a media company. But did, do you remember the America Online Time Warner merger? Oh my God! Yeah, it was the biggest yeah. merger in history and is now still considered to this day to be the worst merger in history because obviously AOL was on, was floating on a huge bubble that was based entirely on. Mm-hmm. Land landlines and like having to log into an AOL account just to access the internet, and it yeah. like the it was like the largest merger in history and was like almost immediately within a few years considered to be among the worst. And uh, Warner Media basically spun out of um, AOL a few years later. So HBO survived that and it remained high quality. Then a few years ago, it was acquired by AT and T which was like pitching all these synergies that it would like, um, you know, be able to use all this viewership data and then incorporate that into, you know, the mobile uh, phone data and then serve up these super targeted ads and stuff like that. None of those synergies happened. Uh, and like Warner Media was considered like a huge albatross that AT&T wanted to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So then a few years ago, AT&T decides to merge Warner Media with Discovery which loads Warner Media down with like fifty billion dollars worth of debt. Okay, and I'm, I don't know how much you follow like entertainment industry news and stuff like that, but like there's been all sorts of disasters as a result of that because they have to like pay down this debt where they're canceling all these already finished movies like Batgirl just so they could get the tax write off. And so, like, it's just mm-hmm. funny that, like, the entire HBO's existence, it's been this gem, this, like, incredible miracle that happened that, like, disrupted, you know, television and movies and then basically invented pre- prestige TV and continues to this day to put out, like, amazing, critically acclaimed TV shows. And, like, every single parent company that's ever owned it has been, like, a complete disaster. So uh, how are they doing now? Like, I mean, that's where they... Because obviously... I mean, so like, like HBO, you know, Warner, Warner Brothers Discovery, which is the parent company now, yeah. just had a really big, like there are, all these companies are struggling now other than Netflix, mm-hmm. um, yeah. just had another really bad earnings, like quarterly earnings call that caused its stock market, its stock price to tank. And it's just because 
they're just all having like like Netflix was so disruptive in destroying the cable bundle and they all started trying to pivot mm-hmm. to streaming but kind of like the rug was pulled out from under them with you know the fed the federal reserve rising raising interest rates and suddenly there was a lot less free money in the market and wall street suddenly started expecting all these companies to start turning a profit and they were still like losing tons of money on streaming and so now all of their valuations are in the gutter in fact there are now discussions going on to merge Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery. So, so basically, it's on the verge of going through another disastrous like merger as a result. Okay, yeah, I, I, I was just wondering like how they're doing in terms of like the number of subscribers, um, because yeah, like we're back in. I mean, obviously, sort of like the big draw of Netflix, right? Was like you could cut the cord, you could you could get rid of your cable, and then still have like that experience of watching really most of what you want to watch now but now it's like the number of streaming services that you need in order to like need being a loose word here but right you know like if you subscribe to hulu hulu plus without ads netflix disney plus paramount plus peacock what the fuck ever the, like you end up Amazon with Prime. as much money as you yeah you end up with as much money as you would be spending on like a full cable subscription right um and so but also with this many uh competitors who are also you know obviously netflix has its own studio and they're putting out their own kind of premiere programming and kind of like how does i would just wonder like how does hbo pivot from here um like what can they like you know what could somebody innovate next that's going to be sort of a unique offer that isn't being done to death by a bunch of other people. Yeah. I mean, basically I think we're like in a transition stage with the industry where the cable bundle is still kind of hanging on by a thread and it hasn't completely collapsed yet. Basically what needs to happen is their sports need to be spun out of the cable bundle, which is in the process of happening. And once that is, mm-hmm. there will be no, no real reason to subscribe to cable anymore. Um, and then like yeah. all those remaining users, like 50 million or so cable subscribers that are remaining will then probably flood to all the streaming services and that will cause a huge influx of money. And then maybe that'll make it easier for these, all these streaming services to be profitable. But as of right now, all the streaming services are losing money other than Netflix. Netflix finally started turning a profit, like a, like a um, consistent profit within the last few years. But um, you know, HBO max, Disney plus, like they're still, losing hundreds of millions of dollars upwards a billion dollars a quarter because they're they're still having to like build that entire business from scratch so the yeah, industry I mean, I wonder, isn't, the industry yeah. isn't super healthy right now yeah like I, mean, when, I, I remember reading oh sorry go ahead well like when sumner redstone who was the guy who owned who started or who who, who basically combined paramount and viacom and cbs into you know one big mecca company uh, when he died a few years ago, Paramount was worth like something like twenty billion dollars or more, like its value, its stock price valuation, mm-hmm. and it's now less. It's now worth less than eight billion, and like Warner Brothers Discovery is now just in the last year or two is now ha- worth half of what it was when those two companies merged. So they're all like having a very precipitous fall in terms of valuation and they're struggling to recover from basically the dwindling of the, of the lucrative cable bundle. 
Well, yeah, like I, I remember reading an article a few years ago and it was pretty much arguing in the was like we're in the golden age of content or we're actually we're just kind of just getting ready to exit it. So like enjoy the fact that you have shows like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and things like that now because, um, you know, at the same time as, you know, these companies are starting to struggle from producing and like the budgets of these things are so huge. I mean, you get like YouTube, right? It was just it's user generated content. And then you have people with like these massively popular channels and YouTube doesn't have to do anything for that content except host it, right? So like entering possibly this kind of like DIY age of um yeah, just YouTube thumbnail faces everywhere forever. Yeah. Yeah, there's this phrase called ZERP and it stands for zero interest rate phenomena. And it's like, it's okay. given to any company that was completely propped up by there being zero interest rates and therefore, which equates to like basically free money because it costs almost no money to loan loan to you because there wasn't a high interest rate. And so mm-hmm. all these streaming companies and all and the, to what you're saying, like that huge influx of like super prestige co- content was a result not of pro- because of profits that these companies were making, but because of a zero interest rate phenomena in which they could uh, basically borrow money for free without any penalty. Mm-hmm. So then once you know inflation started kicking up and the Federal Reserve started um, raising interest rates, suddenly it got a lot more expensive to borrow money. Wall Street started expecting these companies to actually turn a profit and all that like free money is dried up. And that's why we are currently exiting that prestige era when there was just like so much dumb money being spent on so many TV shows, even though there wasn't that much of an audience for all of them. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just fascinating though, from a sort of, I guess like a pers- like perspective gaining experience here, you know, like <laughs> how you can get from kind of this tiny initial investment uh, and then success largely based on the novelty of being able to see boobs at home uh then leads to like 30 years later you know eight million dollar an episode of uh game of thrones shows right and this i mean they were spending by the end they were spending way more than eight eight million dollars an episode it's now becoming yeah there are there are episodes of stranger things that are that cost 30 million dollars per episode that's absolutely bonkers it's insane yeah yeah okay i got a few more factoids before we sign off um, okay. So, like, HBO recognized the threat from Netflix very early on. It was the only studio that, like, from the very beginning of the early streaming days, refused to license any of its shows to Netflix because it realized oh, it, right. they, it, it, it understood yeah. the threat. Um, but, like, HBO could have competed with Netflix probably, but it was dragged kicking and screaming into streaming um, because mm-hmm. it had built such a great cash cow on top of the cable bundle that like there were ta- there were like factions within HBO that were pushing for a pivot to streaming or to like to a more investment in streaming, but um, but like n- none of the top brass wanted it because they didn't want the- because their profit margins were so high. Um, I don't, I don't know if you remember this era, like when there, there were these, all these products like HBO go and HBO now, they were basically like these super shitty streaming products that you could only use if you had a cable subscription, like you had to prove that you were a cable subscriber in order to use them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. And like, there were like so many games of Thrones fans that were just begging HBO to launch a streaming only subscription, but it, it basically just said, no, fuck you. 
and refused to launch it until really, I think HBO Max finally launched in what, like 2019, 2020. So it was years later that it finally launched like a standalone subscription. And as a result, you know, Netflix had a huge head start. Um, And then I guess the last thing to note is, you know, now because um, Warner Media or Warner Warner Brothers Discovery is in so much debt and is so desperate to make some money on the extra money on its library content for the first time since the in the history of Netflix, just in the last like three or four months, it now has the ability to license a few HBO shows. So for the first time in history, HBO shows are starting to show up on Netflix. So in that in that sense, oh, Netflix is probably Netflix has probably won the war. And they stand flag held high in the smoldering record of HBO. Yes. A, so the, the disruptor became the disrupted. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's all I got for you. What, what, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? Is it, or Do you have like a greater appreciation of HBO now than you ever did before? I really do. I mean, just because I didn't, I didn't really realize how much of, you know, the major developments in the kind of the history of TV, especially since like 1980, uh, are results of innovations by HBO. I mean, the the stand-up comedy special, and that was a thing that happened so gradually and became so ubiquitous that I didn't even notice they really weren't a thing in this way, especially not on like broadcast TV. And now it's like, I feel like it's kind of weird if you don't watch stand-up comedy specials. Like people, for, and I'm not trying to be like the, I don't even own a TV. I just, I don't watch a lot of stand-up comedy. But um, like, I feel like I, I, probably am asked by people if I've seen the most recent so-and-so special more frequently than any other type of TV. Yeah. And, and that was also part of Netflix's like, you know, as it was in its early days of yeah. original content that, that it was shelling out a ton of money to like Dave Chappelle, Mike Birbiglia, all these comics. And it, it basically like took away the entire, it, it captured, it got, it got like a monopoly for a few years on all the major stand-up comics because it was just shelling out so much money. I think like um, Chris Rock got paid like $20 million or something like that, or maybe it was Dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. which is more than any other comics ever been paid for a single stand-up special. So like even today, yeah. like streaming services are recognizing the power of the comedy special as like a, a, a pretty affordable way to, you know, get market share and get people talking about whatever it is you're producing. Yeah. Um, and without, again, the added cost of writers or filming scenes or locations, it's yeah. just, you've got like or a special effects. Set up yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. I feel like I could do whole several other episodes about streaming and Netflix and stuff like that, but that'll be a different episode on a different day. Yeah, for sure. So um, what do you, so next week I'm going to be at a cabin on Sunday. So I don't know if we're going to, re- like, I guess if, since it's your turn to, do the research possibly you could do the research on sunday and we could record on monday otherwise we'll probably have to wait to the following week in order to record the next episode i mean i I, i'd still be good to go uh it's gonna i mean i guess i could i could do the recording from the podcast platform end on here and all you yeah all you have to do is just you know sit there and listen and nod and sound impressed yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. It's always easier when I don't have to do the research. Um, do you have any idea yeah. of what you're going to be talking about next week? I do. I have a couple of ideas. Um, I, I've been thinking about kind of this, you know, the premise of what we're doing, which is that this is the age of 
anyone can become a momentary expert in an evening uh, when they're like doing their like pre-bed scrolling on their phone and they fall down three Wikipedia holes in their own. Then the next day they're a momentary expert, right? So I, I've been thinking of a couple of stories that have grabbed my attention uh, largely uh, because of their instances in which uh, we can't know something or it becomes hard to know, right? And we've become so accustomed to it that it becomes an obsession with people. Um, and, and these involve sort of, uh, sort of, you know, internet-based uh, mysteries, right? Which is a kind of a thing that we didn't really have for a long time, which was this ability to form a community of people who are all obsessed with discovering a thing. Uh, so that's one of the things that I was thinking about. The other thing that I was thinking about um, was, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, right? Because uh, I accidentally signed into, or I accidentally went to YouTube when I was not signed in, right? And so it's not curated at all. And it's not trying to suggest things to me. And it's all, it's all YouTube thumbnail faces, right? Now, I know YouTube thumbnail faces have been written about to death and to no end, right? Um, but I've been thinking about it in the context of what we were talking about last week with sort of like the age of loneliness amidst the age of the internet. And, and I think there could be some interesting insights there. So I don't know which one of the two I'll pick, but I'll know by three hours before the next podcast and when I become a momentary expert on it. Yeah, your, your topics are always more abstract and philosophical than mine. Mine's like, here's the history of prohibition. Here's the history of HBO. You're like, why are people lonely? <laughs> oh. So, um, but, you know, that was, I mean, well, but if you're doing the history of prohibition or the history of HBO, it, you have a much less chance of just sort of rambling off into the stratosphere, which I feel like I do half the time. Um, yeah, it, is, does, it does allow me to have like a certain certain level of structure. Although I, I was very, I, I thought this would be an easy slam dunk, much easier than the prohibition episode. But I got yeah. I got like three, you know, my requisite three hours of research into this, and I like it felt like I had built up, I had bit off more than I chew, I could chew, and I didn't feel like I had a firm enough grasp to lecture about it over a prolonged period of time. Like I, you know, like where I could connect all these dots together. But luckily, it's I think it sort of came together for me. I thought I thought you did great because yeah I've got at least the broad strokes of kind of the the history of HBO the transition from you know kind of scandalous naughty content to like premier television and then kind of how that all ties in together with kind of the larger history of the medium up to and including the present day with streaming so yeah and I didn't have that an hour and 15 minutes ago so good job Simon yeah Cool. Thank you. All right, man. Well, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording and uh, get to work editing this. And uh, hopefully this will be up by the end of the night. Uh, thanks, Craig. Cool, buddy.